I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And we'll be taking our second look at verses 13 through 18. It's interesting that every chapter of 1 Thessalonians ends with a reference to the second coming of Christ. And this one is certainly no different, but this is the longest and the most involved uh, reference to that great and glorious future event. Uh, Last week I uh, went over four reasons why I think the rapture of the church is post-trib. So those are my convictions, and that has been basically the belief of the uh, church up until about 1830 when John Nelson Darby kind of popularized the pre-tribulational view of the rapture. Uh, But this morning what we're going to do is look through uh, the passage and focus our attention on the resurrection of the dead saints. That will be our focus uh, this morning. And let me see, I need maybe some help in getting this on my screen. So I'm going to have to ask one of the guys much smarter than I am to come up and heal my iPad up here. The gift of healing still exists, electronically at least. So, um, When someone that we love dies, it naturally brings great sorrow into our life. This uh, sadness can certainly be profound because mourning is not only natural, it's expected when we lose a loved one. This is certainly indicated by Jesus himself who wept when Lazarus, his friend, died. And that weeping of his tears over the death of his close friend sanctifies all of the tears of those who weep in the loss of a loved one. But when that departed one is a believer, there is also an opportunity for joy to be mingled with the sorrow. Because we know where they are. As a believer, their soul is immediately transported into the presence of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we know that our uh, distance from them is but for a temporary period of time. Thank you, brother. We also know that uh, when Christ comes back, there bodies will be resurrected and joined with their soul again and they will forever be with the Lord in that glorified condition. So there can be both sorrow in the loss of a loved one, but when they're a believer, we can also have a measure of joy in the hope of the resurrection. The, the believers at Thessalonica really did not understand this yet. Uh, when Paul was there with them, his stay was cut short. And so although he had started to teach them about the second coming of Christ, there were a lot of the details that he had not yet gone over with them. And so they, they were grieving over the loss of their brethren who had died because they were, they were uncons- unaware of what would happen. They were ignorant of what might happen to them when Christ came back. Would their bodies miss out on the resurrection? Because they're dead instead of alive. 
And so they were, they were at the point of starting to, to grieve. So with that in mind, let me read the passage for us, and then we'll start to work our way uh, through this uh, important passage. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 13. But we do not want you to be un- uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as, the, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So while Paul's intent in this passage is to clarify their misunderstanding about the, the condition of the believers who have already died, and specifically about their bodies, what will happen to their bodies. And he wants to comfort them. He wants to instruct them so that they will not grieve like those who have no hope. So Paul is wanting, he's not wanting to prevent grief at all, but he's wanting to prevent hopeless grief. It's natural to grieve when loved ones die, even particularly when they're believers. But he wants them not to have the hopeless grief that the Gentiles have. Now, within this passage, therefore, there are four major topics that Paul is going to deal with. He's going to certainly deal with the return of Jesus Christ, which is the second coming, in my understanding, not a pre-tribulational coming, but the second coming of Jesus Christ. He'll deal with the resurrection of the dead. Thirdly, he'll deal with the rapture of the living saints who are alive when Christ comes back. And then he deals with the glorious reunion of all of those saints with Christ, and they'll be with him forever and ever. So it's really an incredibly uplifting and exalted passage that uh, we'll be looking at. So let's begin with the reason for their concern. So in verse 13, Paul says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. So he, is, he doesn't want them to be uninformed or ignorant about what's going to happen to these Christians who have died already and what's going to happen to them when Christ comes back. So he says, I do not want you to be uninformed. This is really kind of a popular expression for the Apostle Paul. You find it six times in his letters. I do not want you to be uninformed. I do not want you to be ignorant. And what that says is that Paul's ministry was by and large a ministry to bring light to dispel the darkness of ignorance. So he's coming to to present sound doctrine to them. They, he didn't have time to go over all these details when he's there, which led to their misunderstanding and being misinformed, 
grieving because they weren't they they were grieving over their lost loved ones who were in the church confused unknowing what's going to happen to them and so Paul is now writing this letter to give them the proper truth to encourage and comfort their hearts notice he's referencing he doesn't want them to be uninformed brethren about those who are asleep and this is one of the euphemisms that's found in scripture Uh, And this one in particular refers to the dead saints, not the Roman Catholic view of the saints. All Christians are saints in the New Testament. So those believers who have died are referenced as being asleep. Uh, Jesus is the first one to use this expression in the New Testament when he refers to his friend Lazarus who had died And in John chapter 11, verse 11, he says, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. Well, he hadn't fallen asleep, he had died. But Jesus refers to his death as being asleep. And this is uh, a very appropriate uh, figure of speech for death. Because on the one hand, when you look at someone who's died, they, they look like they're asleep. They're motionless, they're quiet, they're resting. It gives the appearance that they're asleep. But also the the figure of speech to them being asleep is also very powerful because if someone's asleep, eventually they're going to wake up, right? And so when a Christian dies, they're referred to as falling asleep because one day they're going to wake up. And that's the day of the resurrection. When Christ comes back, those who are asleep in Christ will experience this wake-up call where they will experience the glorious awakening of the resurrection that will occur when Christ comes back. So for believers to be referred to as being asleep is a very powerful imagery, a figure of speech. They are dead But uh, it's referred to as being asleep because of just looking forward to that glorious day of awakening that still lies ahead. By the way, the word cemetery, where we bury our loved ones, means a sleeping place. A cemetery is the dormitory of the dead. But But believers are asleep because they will be resurrected in glory when Christ comes back. I also want to point out that it's only the body that is referred to as sleeping, not the soul. So we, we don't want to fall into the error of the Seventh-day Adventists or the Jehovah's Witnesses that believe in some form of a soul sleep. That is not biblical. That's not in Scripture. Uh, so it's only the body that sleeps. The soul does not the soul immediately goes and rises into the presence of Jesus Christ in heaven. Many scriptures teach this. For example, Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. So he's not going off into limbo or some other place where his soul falls asleep. No, he's going to be conscious with Jesus in paradise that very day. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. 
No reference, no idea of soul sleep there. He is with the Lord when he dies. When he leaves this body, the soul goes to be with the Lord in, uh, in his heavenly home. <clears throat> Philippians 1.23 again, Paul says that he had the desire to depart and to be with Christ. So the soul doesn't go off into some no man's land and fall asleep. It's very conscious and it's actually with the Lord right at that time. Jesus also taught this in his parable of Lazarus and the rich man. And they both died, you remember, in that story. And they were both very conscious. Lazarus was in heaven with Abraham being comforted. The rich man was in hell being tormented. And the, and the rich man cried out, you know, to Abraham, send Lazarus to go tell my brothers so that they don't come here. He's very conscious. There's no soul sleep in that passage at all from the Lord. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, the believers who had died at that point, their souls ascended to heaven. They were under the altar. And the Scriptures even record what they're saying. How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Obviously very conscious. No soul sleep at all. And when Paul says in Philippians 1.21, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain, there's no gain if your soul just goes to sleep and your body goes to the dust and ashes. Where's the gain in that? The gain above being alive in Christ, to die is gain because to live now is to live for Christ, but to die is to live with Christ in heaven. That is gain. That's something to look forward to. But a soul sleep offers no gain whatsoever. So, Paul is saying to them in verse 13, we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. And here he's referring to the Gentiles. Because the Gentile religions and their philosophies generally gave no hope for the body. And most of them gave no hope for the soul either at death. And so what Paul is saying is, I don't want you to grieve like the Gentiles who have no hope in the resurrection. They don't, have, they don't understand a resurrection. They don't believe in a resurrection. For example, the Greeks and the Romans thought that there was no future for the body when you died. The body in this life is but a prison house for the soul. And once you die, then your soul is liberated from... Your prison house, that was kind of the Gnosticism idea, that material things are evil. And even the soul, they believed, when, when you die, the soul goes off to Hades. And Hades is kind of a, a dismal realm of shadows and shades. So the soul is kind of doomed to bemoan its existence in the sunless world of the dead. So that... That was some of their understandings of what happened when somebody died. The Stoics, that's a, one of the philosophies prevalent in the first century, 
also had a lot of doubts about man's future. Uh, They held to somewhat of a conditional survival of the soul that was basically only temporary and that eventually the soul would be swallowed up in the fiery substance which they identified as being God in some vague sort of way, but no hope for the body at all. The Epicureans, another philosophy prevalent in the first century, taught that the soul is material and shares the same fate as the body. So in other words, when the body dies, the soul dies, so that there's no need to fear any kind of punishment after life, according to the Epicureans, because your soul decays and falls away just like the body does. And really, there's, there's nothing new about this. Atheism today, secular philosophies today, they don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in hope for the body. For example, there was a, a debate a few decades ago between William Provine, who was an atheist, and Philip E. Johnson, a Christian, and uh, they debated on Stanford Univers- at Stanford University. And Provine, the atheist, this is what he said about his belief of what happened to you when you die. He said, let me summarize my views on what modern evolutionary biology tells us loud and clear. There are no gods, no purposes, no goal-directed forces of any kind. There is no life after death. When I die... I am absolutely certain that I'm going to be dead. That's the end of me. There is no ultimate foundation for ethics and no ultimate meaning to life. And then because uh, Philip's there, there were some Christians there in the crowd as well, and, and, and addressing them, he said, when you die, you're not going to be uh, surprised because you're going to be completely dead. Now, if I find myself aware after I'm dead, I'm going to be really surprised. But at least I'm going to go to hell where I won't have all those grinning preachers from Sunday morning listening to me. I mean, that's hopelessness. That's despair. And that was also prevalent in the Gentile world. And a lot of these believers had come out of that lifestyle. Many of them had turned from idols to serve a living God. Remember chapter 1, verse 10. So they come from a pagan background. No hope for the body. Hardly any hope for the soul. And so some of these believers, because Paul had not completed his instruction about what's going to happen to the body, they thought, well, if Christ comes back, is, is the body of our dead brethren going to miss out on the glory of Christ's return? So that was part of the issue that they were, that they were facing. So now we, Paul goes in verse 14 and he begins to lay the foundation for the resurrection of those who are dead in Christ. So he says in verse 14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And then he goes on and talks about the resurrection. But here's the foundation for our resurrection for those who die. Jesus died and rose again. That's our confidence. That's our authority. That's our encouragement. Jesus died and rose again. 
And because Christ died and rose again, that's the guarantee that believers who die will rise again too. So he begins by laying this theological foundation for the resurrection of the church that has died before Christ comes back. This whole notion, of course, begins with Christ's death. Christ, you see, died on the cross as the sacrifice and substitute for all of His people. He bore all of their sins. He suffered the wrath of God for every single one of their sins so that when they die, they have no sins left to condemn them to send them to hell. Christ has suffered in their place. He's endured all that their sins deserve. He has completely and fully satisfied the infinite justice of God so that there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and there is no separation from the love of God in Christ. So the death of Christ accomplished the forgiveness of our sins. But then he adds, Christ rose again. And it's Jesus' bodily resurrection that becomes the guarantee that all believers who die before Christ returns will be resurrected as well. A lot of verses to support this. Remember Jesus, before He resurrected Lazarus, uh, had a conversation with Mary. And Mary said, and Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. So Jesus is saying, I am the resurrection and life. If you believe in me, you will live even if you die. So in other words, we die physically, but we will live. Our soul will still live in heaven and ultimately our body will live because of the resurrection. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 11, that if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and it does, the Spirit of Christ was involved in the bodily resurrection of Jesus, and that Spirit dwells in your body and my body as a believer. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So the fact that we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, the Holy Spirit participated in the resurrection of Jesus, and because He is our seal and our guarantee, it guarantees that we're going to, that the Spirit will also give life to our mortal bodies, our physical bodies, when Christ comes back. What a, what a wonderful promise. Part of the reason for this is in Ephesians 2, You see, because Christ was our substitute, He was our representative on the cross. So when He died, we died positionally in Him. And when He was raised from the dead, we were raised positionally in Christ so that there is a sense in which our identity with Christ, we are now in heaven with Him positionally at this very moment. Paul says this in Ephesians 2. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him 
and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, physically, we're still down on earth, but spiritually, positionally in Christ as our substitute, we are now in heaven. We've been resurrected through our substitute. We've been ascended into heaven because of our substitute. So in a sense, Paul could say we are now in heaven with Christ. That guarantees that one day, body and soul, we will be with Him there also. We're already there positionally in our substitute who represented us in His death, burial, and resurrection. He did it for us. He was our stand-in. He's now in heaven guaranteeing that we will be there also. And of course, the Apostle Paul also connects our resurrection with Christ's resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. So Christ's resurrection was only the firstfruits of this great general resurrection that's going to occur. He's the firstfruits. And then in verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. So we become the harvest of the resurrection. The firstfruits was Jesus when he arose from the dead. But the firstfruits guarantees that there's a harvest to come, and we are that harvest. Our resurrection is tied to his resurrection. Because he rose again, that guarantees that we will rise from the dead if we die first before he comes back. And all of this in this passage is connected to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And there's many verses that reference that as well. So, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So, at the second coming, when Jesus descends out of heaven, he's going to bring with him all the souls of dead believers. So, he brings all these, because they've been with him since the day of their death. Their souls went up to heaven, they've been with Christ in heaven. And when Jesus comes back, He's going to bring all those souls with Him as He uh, descends on His way down to the earth. So all the souls will come with the Lord. All the believers throughout history at that point in time will be brought from heaven with the Lord down to the earth. Abraham will be there. Isaac. Jacob. King David, all the prophets of Isaiah, Jeremiah, the thief on the cross, he'll be there. He'll be included. Stephen, who was stoned to death. James, the martyr. The Apostle Paul, Peter. All the saints will come with the Lord. He'll bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Christ. And all the Old Testament believers, they believed in Christ. They looked forward to it through the shadows and the emblems that they had and the animal sacrifices, the promises of the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. They all looked forward to Christ. We look back to Christ. But all who die before the Lord comes back, Christ will bring their souls with Him when He descends from heaven. And then what will happen? Well, Paul goes on to say, 
In verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. In verse 16, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So Jesus now descends with the souls of all the believers throughout the entire history of humanity that have believed in Christ and have trusted Him for salvation, and their souls are with the Lord in heaven. So the Lord will descend with the souls, and then the bodies that are left on earth will rise. The dead in Christ will rise first. Those bodies will be resurrected first before the living saints get our glorification. So there's an important order here that takes place. This is really quite glorious. And notice what Paul says. This is by the word of the Lord. Now again, commentators debate on what this means, but last week uh, we compared Matthew 24 with 1 Thessalonians 4, and it's amazing how Paul is borrowing the language from Matthew chapter 24. And I think when he says by the word of the Lord, he's referring primarily to Matthew 24 because the language is so similar in those five or six areas that we pointed out last week. Others think it was by revelation or by some other means, but, uh, but I think it's connected to the Matthew 24 passage more than likely. But what he's emphasizing is the dead in Christ will rise first. They will be glorified before we are glorified. Now this kind of raises a question, okay, so the dead in Christ will be resurrected. What does that look like? What will the resurrection body be like? Well, we know we're told in Scripture they'll be similar to our Lord's resurrection body. Paul says this in Philippians 3.21, that when Christ comes back, He will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. So when Christ comes down, the first thing He'll do is He'll, he'll issue a shout that will command the dead to rise in, in Christ first, kind of like Lazarus come forth. That's the shout that He'll make. And the dead in Christ will, will, be, will be raised and they will be given a body that was similar to our Lord's. It will be a glorified body. He'll take the humble state of those ashes or the condition of the body, whatever condition it's in, and conform it with the body of His glory. So we'll have a resurrection body. That body is miraculously physical. You can touch it. Uh, you can embrace it. Mary fell at Jesus' feet and hugged Him. Uh, it's a body that can also eat food. It can drink, as Jesus certainly ate food before His disciples uh, after He was resurrected. It's a body that also has supernatural powers to it. It can appear and disappear. It can pass through a closed door, as it were. It's, a, it's an incredible body that we don't fully understand, but it is physical. But it will be adorned with glory. Uh, Daniel chapter 12 
says that the saints will shine brightly like the stars forever and ever. So our bodies will be impregnated with glory. And you'll will possibly be have, having that glorious shine to us in one way or another. Don't know how all that is. Just uh, trying to figure out what, what Daniel's talking about. But it will be a body that we have now. It's not going to be a completely different looking body. In other words, when Christ raises you from the dead, he doesn't give you a catalog and you can open it up and say, man, I like those ears. I'll take those ears. And my nose, you know, give me, I like that nose. No, it's the same body you have now. And don't let that discourage you because every resurrected body is going to be beautiful. That's why the Scriptures talk about the, the beauty of holiness. And the resurrection body will be so full of God's glory and holiness, it will just shine forth with the beauty of that grace. So every body will be similar to the, to the one that we have now, but it'll be beautiful as it's adorned with the glory of God. I love the way Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 describes the resurrection body. And uh, <clears throat> you can read this more from that passage later. But he talks about the body that is sown versus the body that is raised. The body that is sown is the body that is buried. It's sown. And in this passage, he has reference to like the, the sowing of a seed. Like if you're a gardener and you sow a seed in the ground, you have sown it, you've buried it in the ground. But why do you do that as a gardener? In the hope and the expectation that one day that seed will sprout forth in new glorious life. And a whole new plant will grow up out of that thing. And it will bear fruit just like the fruit that the seed came from. And so Paul speaks of the body being sown in the ground. But one day it will be raised. And this is how he draws the contrast. It will be sown a perishable body. See, our bodies now are prone to die. Our bodies can get sick. They can get diseased. They can get cancer. Uh, they can grow old and withered and eventually die. We now have, thanks to Adam and the curse and the sin that came into the world, death as the consequences of our sin. It's inescapable unless we're in that final generation. But it is sown into the ground a perishable body, but it will be resurrected as an imperishable body. A body that can no longer get sick, no longer get diseased. A body that will last forever. It's just a miracle of what Christ will do. Secondly, it will be sown in dishonor because that body has died. And death is still our enemy. Death is still our, the, the sin, the consequences of the sin that we've inherited from Adam. So there is dishonor in that because it's associated as the results of our sin. So the body is sown in dishonor, but it is raised in glory. 
It's sown in weakness because sin has made us weak. But it's going to be raised in power. It's sown a natural body, but it'll be raised a spiritual body. Now, some people look at this expression, spiritual body, and they say, well, then it's not physical. It's not material because it's a spiritual body. That's not what Paul means by this expression. A spiritual, this word spiritual can, be, can reference many physical things, even in 1 Corinthians. Uh, he refers to uh, the immature believers as not being spiritual. Now, they're physical. They have a body, but they're not spiritual in that sense. He speaks of the manna and the water from the rock as being spiritual food and drink. They're still physical, but they're spiritual. So in what sense is the body spiritual? Spiritual in at least two ways. Number one, because it's made by the Holy Spirit. So it's spiritual, but it's still physical. It's miraculously physical. It's got powers far more than our physical bodies now, but it's still physical. But it's spiritual because it's made by the Holy Spirit. And secondly, it's made to dwell and thrive in the pristine atmosphere of the glory of heaven. The spiritual realm of heaven, this body, is in conformity with that. But it's still a physical body. It's not an immaterial, ghost-like spirit or phantom body. It is a real physical body, just like the Lord's body was physically raised from the dead. So this is the nature of the body that uh, the Lord will resurrect. And you know, you think about it, Think of, uh, you know, the, the idea of uh, certain believers whose ashes have been scattered far and wide. Is that going to be a problem for God to resurrect that body? Well, of course not. Um, John Wycliffe, for example, the morning star of the Reformation, who first translated the complete Bible into English, who taught Reformation truths long before the Reformation actually took place, died of a stroke in the year 1384. But in 1428, 43 years after his death, the church officials condemned the writings of John Wycliffe. They dug up his body, which had been dead already for 43 years. They burned it to ashes And then they took all those ashes and they went and dumped it in the river Swift. So think of where his atoms are right now. However, this did not dampen his influence because his teachings continued to spread so that someone later on wrote this about the ashes of John Wycliffe. He said, The brook, referring to the river Swift, where they dumped his ashes, has conveyed his ashes into the Avon River, the Avon into the Severn River, the Severn River into the Narrow Seas, and they into the main ocean. And thus the ashes of Wycliffe are the emblem of his doctrine, which now has dispersed the world over. So just imagine where the ashes, the atoms of his body are scattered throughout the world, maybe ingested by fish, absorbed and resorbed 
reabsorbed into other life forms, deposited at the bottom of the ocean. But the miracle is that when Christ comes back, because He has the power, He created the heavens and the earth. Nothing's impossible with God. God will command, Christ will command with a shout, and He'll go out and He will retrieve and reassemble all of that to reform that original body, only this time now imperishable with glory, with power, and a spiritual body. So this is a miracle of the resurrection. Can't explain it. Don't know how exactly He's going to do it, but He's going to do it because He promised that He would do it. One more uh, thought on this is, so how many resurrections are there going to be? Now, this kind of gets into your view of eschatology. And uh, obviously, there's difference within believers, whether you're dispensational pre-mill or historic pre-mill or post-mill or all-mill. How many resurrections are there going to be? The pre-mill, for example, says there's at least two. You got the resurrection of the, of the church at the second coming, but the wicked, the unbelievers, are not resurrected until a thousand years later at the end of the millennial kingdom. That's when the wicked are resurrected. So you have two resurrections. Very clear. They all hold that and teach it. But what did Jesus say? Jesus said there's only one resurrection. So, for example, in John chapter 5, he says, Do not marvel at this, that an hour is coming. An hour, a singular event is coming. One great climactic future event. An hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice. All of them. Everybody. And will come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life. That's the resurrection of the righteous, the saints. And those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. That's the resurrection of the wicked. Are they separated by a thousand years? They are not. They occur together when that one hour comes. An hour is coming and everybody will be resurrected the believers and the unbelievers at the same time so the premillennialists have an issue here that i think they need to work through in my humble opinion and and you have the right to study it out and if you want to disagree with me that's certainly fine many do uh, but also notice in john 11 when, uh, back when uh, Jesus is talking with Martha about Lazarus who had died. And Martha says to Jesus, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the dead. I remember earlier in our scripture reading in John 6, that's what Jesus said several times. That all the elect he will raise from the dead when? On the last day. Remember we saw that several times in John 6. So on the last day, all of the believers, the church, all the saints will be resurrected on that last day. But then in John 12, look at what Jesus says. He rejects me, 
and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word which I spoke is what will judge him when? At the last day, the same day. So on the one hand, on the last day, all the saints, all the believers will be resurrected, and on that same last day, the wicked will also be judged. So it's the general resurrection of the dead. That's a view that has been kind of the majority view throughout church history. There's just one resurrection. It's a general resurrection of both the righteous and the unbelieving at the same time, not separated by a thousand years. This is also true in Matthew 25, the sheep goat judgment. They're both brought before the Lord at the same time. They're judged at the same time. Very clear. Jesus emphasizes it again in Matthew 25. Paul echoes the same belief in chapter Acts 24, verse 15. Paul says, There shall certainly be a resurrection singular of both the righteous and the wicked. Not resurrections, one of the righteous, and then much later, one of the wicked. No, it's just a resurrection, singular. And when we get to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Lord willing, you'll find that at the second coming, when Jesus comes again, the wicked are going to be judged at that same time. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he's talking about the righteous, the, the, uh, the result, the destiny of the righteous. 2 Thessalonians 1, he's going to talk about the results, the consequences for the wicked. But they both occur at the second coming of Jesus Christ. So anyway, something to think about for those of y'all that may have a differing opinion. Uh, let me finally just kind of touch on the importance of the bodily resurrection. This is uh, something that is designed to be a great comfort to us. That's why Paul is telling them about it, that there is great comfort. The importance of the resurrection, I have uh, five quick things to say. First one is necessary for our entrance into the kingdom of God, the eternal kingdom, the kingdom of glory. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, Paul says, Now I say this, brethren, that, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does a perishable inherit the imperishable. We cannot enter, our bodies cannot enter into the presence of God Almighty, into the glory of heaven until it's first been glorified. This body cannot enter into the presence of a holy God without being incinerated by His holiness. We need a body that is capable of living in the very presence of God Almighty. It requires a glorified body. That's what he's talking about here. This flesh and blood cannot inherit it. It cannot endure it. Secondly, it's also part of our redemption because when Jesus Christ came to save us, He didn't come just to save our soul. He came to save our soul and our bodies. We are complete humans, soul and body. Jesus took on a second nature, complete humanity, soul and body. And our redemption touches both. So Paul in Romans 8.23 says, For not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruit of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So not only will our, are our souls redeemed now, 
but our bodies will be redeemed when Christ comes back. That's why we are eagerly awaiting the adoption of sons. The fullness of our adoption will not be brought to pass until the resurrection, and our bodies as well enter into that glory. Thirdly, it also completes our transformation to be like the Lord Jesus. In 1 John 3, verse 2, John says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and yet it has not appeared as yet what we will be. Yeah, we're children of God, but there's more to that than what we have right now. He says, we know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. So we'll be conformed as close as we can be to the very person of Jesus Christ. We never become God, but we become like the Son of God. We become like Him when He appears, when He comes back. That's a glorious thing to to look forward to. Number four, it also encourages us in times of suffering. Paul could say, therefore, we do not lose heart. You know, there's really a lot of things today that we can lose heart over. I mean, look at the world. Look at what's going on in this sinful, cursed world. There's a lot to be discouraged about, to lose heart in. But Paul says, nah, we don't lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, he goes on to say, and unfortunately I left it out, but our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So while Paul is saying, yeah, I live in a world that hates Christ. Look at my back. Five times I received the Jewish 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. He recounts all of his bodily pain and abuse. He says, you know, in all that, I don't lose heart. Because my inner man is being renewed day by day. I'm being encouraged. I'm being refreshed. Why? Because I've taken my eyes off of the troubles of this life and put them on the glory that awaits us when Christ comes back. For momentary light affliction. That's all I've endured, Paul says. It's just momentary. It's light. Certainly not hell. In light of that, it's it's light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are not seen are eternal. That's where my focus is. So that the whole second coming of Christ, the glory that's to be brought to us at that time, should encourage us and lift us up to persevere that regardless of how hard you may have it in this life, glory awaits you. That's why Peter could say that let us be diligent and, and uh, gird up our, the loins of our minds and to fix our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's where our hope should be, brethren. And if your hope is not there, you will find that you have a tendency to lose heart, to become discouraged, become upset with the things that are going on. Genuine to be upset. We all are upset. But let us not let it steal away our joy 
and the renewing power of that future glory when Christ returns. Paul says in Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's the uplifting. That's the, it's like the boxer in the boxing ring. And he's just taking blows to the head. And he's just almost knocked out. They drag him over. The bell rings. They drag him over. They stick him on the stool. And one of his coaches come over. And they break one of those smelling salts. And they stick it under his nose. And he breathes it in. And suddenly, man, he's ready to go back out there again. And, and the truth of the second coming, the glory that's there, should be like smelling salts to our fatigued and worn out and beaten up souls. It's designed to encourage us to look beyond this life to see the glory that waits for us. And then finally, the motivation for a godly life. At the end of this incredible chapter on the resurrection of not only Christ but of the saints of God, Paul closes that whole glorious exposition of the bodily resurrection with these words. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. The Lord will reward His people for whatever service, whatever works, whatever sacrifices they endure in this life for His kingdom, for His glory. So Paul says, be steadfast. Don't let the second coming move you into passivity or being idle. No, ramp it up. Get busy serving the Lord. Be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Because when the Lord comes, He will reward you and bless you. Because that is His grace working in your life, and He's going to reward His own grace, His own Spirit's work in your heart, amazingly. But it should be a great motivation to live godly for Christ Jesus. So to wrap this up, when Christ comes back, the dead in Christ will be resurrected before we are changed. And as someone who's done a, a number of funerals, <clears throat> whenever they bury, I think they just do this across the board, but it's most appropriate <clears throat> for believers. They always bury them with their feet pointing towards the east. Have you ever noticed that? Go to any funeral service or graveside service, and they'll always be pointing feet first towards the east. Now, why is that? Because there's a verse in Scripture that talks about Christ coming like lightning that will flash from the west to the east. And so they lay them on their back, face up, feet towards the east, so when Christ comes, they can just immediately rise up to meet Him in the air. It's really a beautiful tradition that celebrates this tremendous confidence in the resurrection of the dead. Well, who will participate again in this glorious event? Well, Jesus said, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Who will participate in this glorious event of the resurrection in glory? Well, it's those who have beheld the Son, those who have believed in Him, those who have acknowledged their own sin, 
their own inability to do anything to merit grace from God, who understand that by nature we're children of wrath and we deserve to be judged by God, where we become sensitive to our sin and know that there's no hope in me to earn my salvation, but I have turned from my sin and I've put my faith and trust completely and totally in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And then, if in the providence of God we die before the Lord comes back, we will participate in the resurrection of the righteous. Will you be there? Will you be in that glorious event? Have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Have you believed in Him as your Lord and Savior? And are you seeking to follow Him now as your shepherd? Those are the ones who it will be shown to be true on the last day that they will be raised in glory when the unbelievers will be raised in shame and disgrace and eternal gloom. So may God give us that faith and conviction that this is a real event that awaits us and may I be prepared for it. And may I be watching and waiting for the returning of our Savior so that I might be raised in glory or transformed if I'm still alive and be with Him forever and ever. That's the comfort for the saints. And may it encourage us as well. For now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Come to Christ and be saved. Let's pray.